Welcome everybody. My name is Richard C. Wilson from the Family Office Club, and today we're hosting a virtual investor discussion panel on technology. We have many investors here today on the panel. They're gonna introduce themselves, kind of go through a little bit about what their background and perspective is, and then we're happy to answer your questions here live. We'll be recording this for our member portal. We have now around 170 discussion panels recorded in the portal on all different niche topics. We've probably only done a handful on technology specifically, uh, but we also have in the portal investor mandate interviews. We've done about 90 of those one-on-one, -on -one, seven-minute video interviews, and at least 15 of those, if not 20, I think, are tech-related in some way. So if you're here, you might want to also check out those interviews. Um, Catherine, why don't you go first and just introduce yourself for one or two minutes, and then we'll go down the line. Okay, thank you. Um, I am co-president of the... Uh, and uh, have been in the investing as an angel business for over a decade, uh, actually 20 plus years if you count um, earlier stage, uh, I mean earlier career uh, investments. Um, I am a broadly networked uh, uh, syndicate manager, so I have a lot of friends all the way across the country, up and down the West Coast. Uh, invest in deals, uh, primarily the early stage, but also participate in later stage series C and D uh, uh, investments uh, through multiple uh, venture uh, groups. Um, in addition to that, I also consult with uh, uh, growth stage companies um, and so am involved in their strategy overall in go-to-market, business model, uh, team alignment, and so on. Uh, I would say I'm reasonably informed on scaling challenges encountered by companies as they go through their go through their growth. Sure, great, okay, thank you. And uh, Gary, what about yourself? Sure, um, I'm the uh, founder manager director of I uh, launched the in 2010. Um, we're located here in the Silicon Valley as well. Uh, actually in the South Valley, a little south of San Jose. Uh, my background, like many, is two distinct uh, sides. I came out of the technology world when I got out of the Army. I actually started working for a defense contractor and led their R&D for 15 years. So I've pretty much worked on everything from combat vehicles to lifestyle apps. Um, I launch a lot of incubators uh, globally and work with them. And I work with a lot of foreign governments and so forth on what normally would have been boot camps and stuff coming to the uh, United States to expand companies. Well, now it's all being online. So we're working with Armenia for the first time uh, starting September 1st with 15 companies. That's a, so that's most of my background. I'm, uh, again, I'm here in the Silicon Valley, but I'm globally connected. Um, like I said, I mainly work in ecosystem modes, kind of like, uh, you know, connections and so forth as much as anything. Uh, but we tend to focus a lot in the tech area obviously being in the Valley. Um, and we also uh, do ag, ag tech as well, being uh, between Silicon Valley and uh, Salinas, so to speak. So we tend to bridge that gap as well. Sure, okay, great. John? John's uh, northwest side of Chicago. Uh, we're a multifamily office wealth management firm, directly managing a little over 800 million uh, and then advising uh, on several billion of total family wealth. Uh, we really do look at it as that integration from strategy to execution for the client families that we serve. We've got uh, families across 30 states in the U.S. Uh, as well as Western Europe. 
and then a bit more of a outsourced chief investment officer when we think about single family office uh, management. Um, Gary, thank you for your service coming out of the Army and anyone else that's there. So it's great in terms of uh, putting these forums together. Richard, thank you again for having us. Sure. Thanks for being here. Skip? Uh, I'm with an economic development organization called in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And what we discovered in uh, much of our work over many years working with entrepreneurs and helping researchers in particular uh, get companies launched uh, and educating them on uh, how to grow a business, how to create a business and grow that business and then raise capital, we found that the missing link in our state was angel capital. Uh, we have VCs, but we didn't have a lot of angels. And so we as an EDO, recognizing a challenge and an issue, decided, okay, let's jump in here and figure out how, what we can do. So in 2012, we created an angel group called uh, it is the largest angel group in the state, uh, and we've been uh, investing since late 2012. Uh, we are narrowly focused geographically in that we only invest in Michigan-based uh, early-stage startup tech companies, but we're industry agnostic, so we don't really care as long as there's a technology and the ability to scale. Sure. Okay. Great. And uh, Ron, I think you might be on mute still, but if you want to introduce yourself next. Otherwise, we can have um, Ian, if you want to go uh, next, we can get back to you, Ron, just a second. Sure, Richard. Thanks. It's nice to be with everyone here today. Good day. My name is Ian. I'm the chairman of the was the first high-tech angel group in the United States. And to one degree or another, most other angel groups have drawn from our pioneering experience in making early stage investments in high-tech companies. There are now literally hundreds of angel groups across the country, and they went from being a questionable feature of the dot-com era to now an old uh, and recognized piece of the financial food chain for early stage investing. There are lots of new kids on the block from Angels List and Kickstarter to super angels and accelerators and micro VCs, uh, but angels and angel capital, either individually or in groups, are an established part of the food chain. So much so that many angel clubs, including ours, have side funds that very much resemble VCs. I'm also the general partner of the Band of Angels Acorn Fund which makes uh, direct investments in seed stage deals. Uh, this is the third fund we've had under the Band of Angels moniker. And I'm pleased to give ourselves a plug that just this month, literally, literally last week, we returned 100% of our investor capital. And we're doubly pleased that our remaining uh, investment in Airbnb looks like it's gonna go public uh, in the fall, according to news accounts. So we're looking forward to having a profitable fund and, um, and seeing what comes next. Nice to cool. be with you. Yeah, it's exciting. Thank you for being here. And uh, Ron? Sure. Uh, Ian, uh, thanks for the update on uh, profitable exits. Always nice. <laughs> and we're in the unique position to realize how uh, rare it is to get a 10-banger or more. So it's great. Uh, so my name is Ron, and I'm uh, a super angel. So uh, we like to invest in uh, young companies, uh, uh, target enterprises 
with uh, software, uh, either that enterprises would use or uh, they would eventually partner with to have the uh, go-to-market strategy uh, uh, complete with the enterprise. So uh, we've invested in many companies over the years. Uh, we love technology, uh, software especially, uh, and we work with the founders. Uh, I personally have a background in technology. I own a software company uh, with many customers like the Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Wells Fargo, Barclays, and many others. So we like to add value. So we invest. It's cutting out a little bit. Might have uh, lost you there, Ron. Well, uh, I can jump into the value either in uh, extending technology capability. Okay, are we good? Oh, there we go. Yeah, I think you're back now. Uh, what was the last the last uh, half sentence or sentence there? Yeah, so we look for founders who are very talented and very uh, ambitious. So we have a, an investment model where we don't read too many business plans because once we have an initial discussion with the founders, we give them these 10 questions. And if they do come back, which actually is a very small percent do, then we will engage further. But uh, these qualifier questions uh, really uh, do help the cause to minimize the time and effort and due diligence and to see, weed out the talent and ambitious from the talkers. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure just like uh, Skip focusing on Michigan early stage, it just eliminates most people contacting you on human earth and makes your life more simple on some level. Um, and Ian, what was the year you got started? Was it like 1975 or something? Oh, no, not that long ago at all. Truly, really, people are surprised at how recent organized high-tech angel investing is. The founded in 1994, so we just completed our 25th year. I joined in 1997, so I've been doing this now for 23 years myself. Wow. Uh, but, um, but really, it, you know, the media articles in the 90s were all about whether angel groups were a feature of the dot-com era or not. So it was definitely a, uh, the evolution of the American financial food chain, which at one time VCs were the new kid on the block in the 60s and 70s, uh, the 90s were when angel groups were the new kid on the block, and, and now we're old hat. Right, right. Yeah, kind of like uh, family offices a decade ago were relatively unknown, and still the average person who doesn't work in finance has no idea what a family office is. And I think some of my friends think I help people set up home-based offices. <laughs> Nowadays is actually relevant, but uh, it's not really what we do. Uh, so a lot of you see a view of the forest that our members don't see, that private investors don't see, and a lot of them are asking me, you know, how is the health of the investment landscape? Like not just tech. I know we're here to talk about tech, so we can comment on that as well. But just in general, the private investors in your networks, are they allocating at the same speed, the same amounts that they were one year ago at this time of the year? Are they allocating more? Are they allocating much less? Obviously, people are allocating to slightly different things. I think most people know that. But do a few of you want to comment on the level of activity you're seeing? Sorry, just say. I'll go ahead, Skip. You can comment first. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that uh, most of our members actually are doing that much allocating per se. My concern, as everybody's was back in uh, late March, early April, are you going to invest at all? And uh, we did a quick survey and found that they were definitely still interested in investing. 
the pandemic wasn't going to slow them down, the, most of them. Uh, I'd say the survey we did, less than half said, hey, we're waiting until 2021 and let this whole thing pass. But the majority were still interested in seeing deals. They still wanted to meet. They wanted to see the deal flow. And in fact, we made our single largest investment in May. Um, it was the, the largest number of our members participated and the total dollar amount was the largest we'd ever done. And that was in May. And then we closed on another deal just last month in July. Uh, so there's activity, there is interest and willingness to invest. Right, right. Yeah, I'm seeing that as well. Um, internally, for our own balance sheet for our company, we closed on a deal recently that was our largest one. And then we closed on one of our largest investor deals recently as well. I don't know if if anyone's seen the opposite thing, is somebody seen uh, less within your network and maybe the allocations are smaller or not as often, or you've seen investors moving forward sometimes with even more aggressiveness because I think it's a better time to be investing perhaps. I was surprised. Uh, our group initially pulled back. I want to say uh, we had a meeting in April that we deferred, uh, but I have to say that I've been uh, pleasantly surprised by how quickly uh, people are looking at deals. We actually invested in three deals in the last quarter. Uh, and I also saw an exit in March. And so on both sides. Um, and two of those three deals actually uh, were oversubscribed. One was uh, in the two plus million uh, for a seed, a seed, deal, seed deal that's actually a larger size. The other one set out to raise a million, ended up raising 1.75. So for the right kinds of deals, I would say that's actually key is I guess the next kind of conversation about what kind of deals are getting done. People are being selected, but they're not slowing down to invest. Right, right. Okay. Sounds good. And then, um, you know, we heard at the beginning about Ron asking some questions up front that most people can't answer or can't answer well. What other strategies do a few of you have to sort through the hundreds of things coming towards you to focus on just the couple that matter, that are the best fit for your network? What do you use as a sorting mechanism right off the bat to skinny things down and, and make it more effective? Well, we use, we just generally, the first thing we look at is does it fit our portfolio? So it has to fit in with, with, with who's in our group. Um, every once in a while, we'll pull something in that really looks unique and different. But at the end of the day, a lot of times, if our group just isn't, you know, knowledgeable enough in that. So we generally, that's what we do first off. Because we have a small group here sitting out here in uh, Morgan Hill. We're not in the heart of the, of the uh, you know, the Palo Alto to San Francisco corridor. So our group tends to cycle around a little bit and we get new, new folks in it. So we tend to focus initially, does it fit what our subject matter experts have in-house? And then from then, it, we, we simple down with some of the basic questions. like other. Okay, sure. Anyone else want to comment on their process of screening? Well, I, I've spoken about it before, Richard. I'll summarize it again that we, um, you know, we refined a process over the years to really manage the, uh, the luxury of having a strong deal flow. Many of the groups here in the Silicon Valley do, and it's an embarrassment of riches, actually. And so figuring out how to sort it is a big challenge. I actually allege that angels um, have the resources to do a better job of doing that kind of sorting than VCs do at the early stage. Uh, if you, you know, a VC typically will source from their own network direct to the partner and that's a choke point. And they've never really um, solved the scale problem of looking at, at unsolicited deals across a broad spectrum that come in unreferred. And that's the primary deal flow source for the band are unreferred deals that are coming in uh, unsolicited. 
uh, we look at about 50 a month. And what I'd like to brag about is that every one of those 50 deals gets looked at by at least six members of the band of angels, all of whom, you know, could be VCs. They all have walked the walk. They've raised, they've started or run companies and they rate, they rate those 50 deals uh, on a, basically a survey monkey. So we never meet the, we don't have to meet the company. That's another choke point, but we, we did get a rating. So every one of the 50 deals gets looked at by six people. Every month we get a list of those 50 deals stack ranked by the survey monkey rating. And then we meet in person with a subset, usually about 10 to 20, depends on the, the month. And we pick the three that come to the monthly meeting uh, where, where we actually give them a full opportunity to uh, do a broad based pitch and engagement with the, with the whole group. Sure. Sure. Great. Okay. Um, I have another question. Does anyone else want to comment on their screening process up front? Because you have a really unique strategy or something that really simplifies things uh, very quickly. Uh, yeah, Richard, sure. I'll add that sure. it's not really uh, a different strategy. It's just a different place. And using the, the Gartner hype cycle, right, where you've got the innovation and then the elevated expectations and then disillusionment uh, with individuals, the individuals on, on this panel other than me, right, are going to be much better at that from an angel uh, perspective in terms of assessing and filtering through that. Our view is trying to strike that balance between what is capital preservation and growth these days uh, for families. And so when we look at it, we really pick up the fourth stage, which is that slope of enlightenment, the language used from the, the hype cycle. It really is that slope of enlightenment that ends up filtering out some of the items that, that the rest of the panel is probably picking through to get to that point, that's typically where our client families then are, then are engaging. Unless they are the innovator themselves, that's what they'd be looking to participate after some of the things have sorted themselves out. Great. Uh, can I add to that? Uh, because of the COVID thing, and we have a narrow focus at Kale. Uh, we're really big on collaborating with other early stage investors, uh, both angel groups and uh, uh, individuals. Uh, so we're really big in uh, having high talent and different uh, skill sets so we can better scope an opportunity. Because by definition, these new ventures are doing the new. And so you need to have different perspectives, like whether it's uh, operations or sales or technology or business model or being a futurist or whatever is having these different skills at the table or on a zoom call to be able to compare notes so if there's three four five or six of you and the thing looks good from different perspectives your confidence goes way up there's probably something here uh, and so this is where you try and pool intelligence and these different skills to uh, understand the deal, but also when you talk with the founders, it's more intelligent. And when you talk to the founders, if you win with intelligence and you get intelligence back, it's probably a good thing. It's a foundation, in fact. And if it's not that way, they don't engage. They just want what they want. They want your money and they'll get back to you. And we don't do that. So you have to have these guys who are really understanding how to work with outside investors, uh, leveraging their skills and capabilities and networks and so forth. And we've been quite surprised with how few founders kind of understand this stuff. And this is huge because if they don't understand it, it dramatically increases risk. And the secret to winning in early stage investing is managing risk. And the first thing to do that, you have to recognize it. And 
many folks struggle with that. Right, right. Yeah, and I found that uh, some early stage CEOs don't respect risk either. They act like there's no risk. Or uh, in one deal I was looking at, um, they gave themselves a $10 million valuation saying that in year two, they're going to do 5 million, they'll do 17 million in year three, et cetera. It was in the Amazon business, but they had been in the Amazon space for a decade and the most revenue they'd ever done was $2 million. I said, well, you know, does the investor get half the company when you don't do 10 million revenue? Uh, you know, it seemed uh, that happens quite often on the valuations. I find it's always a magical hockey stick and uh, there's a lot of risk involved. So uh, one question I get from investors is that they hear these quotes like in the Wall Street Journal and other places from like uh, I think the founder of Airbnb. I'm going to say it wrong, but he said something like these seven months will be like seven years of technology evolution and like everything's going to the cloud faster. Everyone's using Uber Eats more. Everybody, everything's becoming more virtual work from home. Those are some obvious top level things that everybody sees. But all of you spend 80% of your life probably thinking about the second order effects of that, the not talked about effects of that, what people are missing, where the real impact is that never gets talked about by journalists who have never worked in angel investing or tech. So um, what would you say to investors or investment firms watching about the impact of the pandemic and COVID and how are you allocating in a way that's not, you know, like the herd of all angel investors chasing the same things? Like how are you being half step ahead of everybody who realizes things are going more virtual in the cloud. Richard, um, the, there are some unchanging investment principles and uh, we heard Ron t just talk about it, for example, the quality of the leadership, the quality of the team uh, and their ability to create a, what I call sustainable, uh, sustainable competitive advantage or their defensive moat. Those are really, really key stuff. But in the pandemic-informed uh, and post-COVID environment, uh, what um, I'm looking for, and I think, generally speaking, uh, smart investors are looking for, uh, are agility, uh, and also awareness of the new risks presented uh, by this environment, and awareness of the new opportunities. Uh, and so you look for uh, CEOs and leaders who are uh, already thinking ahead, looking ahead, or preferably acting uh, in this new world. I'll give you a, a couple of examples. I recently talked talked with a air filtration system company. Uh, they're developing a cleaner, they've been developing a clean air filter, uh, and but they adapted for COVID so that it would specifically kill viruses and, and, um, um, uh, and uh, bacteria, but directing airflow in the right way to go into classrooms and uh, you know workplaces and so on, uh, that's an example. Uh, another one is uh, uh, you know I I don't need to I need to, I don't really need to talk about this, but but online mental health is huge. Uh, companies that are going virtual in every way, uh, you know, is being favored. But the most important thing is not just defensively managed risk by managing your runway by laying off people but really proactively looking at the opportunity presented, even down to the point where you say, okay, I'm in this place in the market, um, and um, how do I competitively uh, win against my, uh, where I, who I compete against, right? So I, I saw uh, somebody uh, interview yesterday on TV, actually, 
uh, who said, you know, because of our supply chain strength, we're now 50% of the unit uh, shipment in our market. Uh, and so uh, companies that looked at or considered their supply chain agility, right, who were able to flex with the environment uh, and quick, uh, quickly and actually win against competition. That's what, you know, I, I'm looking for. I see. I see. So the, uh, less of a niche within a niche, more so of that attribute of being highly agile and showing that you've already adapted, I guess, as part of But also the defensive and offensive thinking of the leaders, right? So it comes down to the people uh, always, but especially in a fast changing world, it comes down to the team even more. Sure. Okay. Uh, anyone else want to comment on what they're focused on right now? I'd like to second Catherine's comment about, uh, she calls it agility. We call it flexibility. Uh, that is um, uh, really an attribute that uh, Richard is, is paramount in making this sort of really early stage investing uh, work. Um, the typical life cycle of an investment of a company that we back, that many of us back is going to be measured in five to eight years if we're lucky, often 10 plus. And over that lifetime, you're going to have dramatic changes in marketing landscape. Uh, COVID's an obvious one we're all related to, but to take a, a, a technical other example, the introduction of iOS 14 overnight is changing the digital advertising business for Facebook, which has been covered well by the Wall Street Journal just this week, but a plethora of other small digital ad tech companies that were existing in one environment that all of a sudden have had the uh, table upturned upside down on them. So uh, companies that survive or not are going to, of course, be somewhat constrained by what their technology is, but a huge attribute uh, that makes for a winner versus a loser is the market knowledge and ultimate adaptability or flexibility of the entrepreneur um, to, uh, to adapt to the new situation. So when we're thinking of new investments to make, it's not so much uh, tactical around COVID. Tactical around COVID is PPE about adjusting, uh, a PPP about adjusting your burn rate, taking advantage of new opportunities. For instance, we just invested in a, in a therapeutic that uh, might help uh, attack respiratory infections at the mucus layer. So that's very COVID related, but, but the next wave is what you have to look around the corner for, things like uh, AI at the edge, not really clear how that's gonna evolve yet. And if we're lucky, the market will evolve in the right way to benefit the companies we invested in. If we're unlucky, the market may not evolve that way, but if we invested in the adaptable entrepreneur, uh, he or she might be able to win no matter which way the market evolves. So that's kind of our view of it. Sure, sure, makes sense, okay. And then um, in terms of due diligence resources, I think investors and investment firms could benefit maybe from a few of you commenting on any due diligence software, tools, um, a process, whether you use like a due diligence questionnaire after they get past a certain stage and now they're allowed to present, if you put them through the ringer on 70 questions or is that after a presentation goes well? If you want to comment on any due diligence insights or tips. Well, we don't really use any tools. Again, we're, we're not like Ian. We don't, we don't have 300 investors in our group. So we don't, we don't need a massive range of tools. We're pretty straightforward on it. But I would like to sort of leverage out what we're talking because it kind of fits in here as well. One of the things we're looking at more and more as we're looking at due diligence and digging through the companies, as we said, it's one thing to look at the company, what they're doing, 
But we kind of look at ourselves as kind of being the same place today with AI that we were in 1990 with computers. You know, I remember 1990, that's probably when I plugged my first computer into the internet on my 3400 baud modem, you know, and, uh, but we knew the internet was coming and we knew all this stuff. And I think we're in a similar area with AI. So one of the things I'm seeing in a lot of the companies, you know, even at the early stage, you know, they, they're, they've been told that they have to be coming to us angel investors and they have to have a, a product ready to go and realize, hey, we're ready to go, we're off the shelf. And I was like, well, we should have been talking two years ago that if you're off the shelf, we'll get a loan and launch your product. Um, so what we're looking at is future-proofing. And we're seeing a lot of companies that come up with really good ideas, but they'd have been a really, really good idea as a next-generation SaaS model, but not the next-generation smart SaaS model or the next-generation smart tech thing. So we're seeing them come up solving what I call today's problems, but a lot of them are missing tomorrow's problems. And like Ian said, we really don't know what the IoT and this, and this AI thing is going to really look like in three years. So we're trying to you know, sort of see who, who has a clear pathway to that. So that's where we see ourselves. And so we're just, a lot of times we're going through the due diligence and there's no, there's no future proof in there. It's like, well, where's an AI thing? Are you going to manage any of this supply chain with blockchain or, or smart contracts? And, and so I think some of them are missing the technology on the next hurdle. They're looking at the transition to SaaS models, not the transition right. to AI-driven tools. Right, right. right. But I think, um, you know, over 24 years, Ian, based on your description of how you select people to present, I'm guessing you've got a multi-step process for due diligence. And John, in your case, um, because of the sophistication level that's expected from some of your investors to advise them on, on multiple areas, I'm guessing you guys have a, a due diligence process that's relatively rigorous. Are there any tools or any insights you can provide from either of you on, on what you're using to conduct due diligence on these early stage companies? You can go ahead first and okay. follow up. Well, well, I was going to say, you know, what we emphasize in our diligence is, um, is the culture and the team. It is less the technology. I mean, it is for sure. How do, we, how do I say this? We talk about the technology. We talk about the market risk. We talk about barriers to entry uh, and so on and so forth. In talking about all those things and investigating them with the startup, we learn about the, the management team's way of thinking, their adaptability, their flexibility and their market knowledge. And the deals that we tend to invest in are those where, uh, where other things are credible, the surrounding context is credible, but really the exemplary feature is the market knowledge of the entrepreneur, entrepreneur and how much they convince us that they are adaptable and flexible to changing information and circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just, you know, I, I should say there's an exception to this. There's a whole class of angel investment, which you would call small ball. These are deals, say three engineers who quit Intel, knowing the roadmap of an Intel chip development, and they're going to uh, make the chip and give Intel a, a make versus buy decision five years from now. That's a very, that's a very specific diligence-based procedure. And to some extent, medical devices and biotech investing that we do inside the band also lend themselves to specific diligence. But most other early stage investments at the stage we're at don't lend themselves well to diligence. Consider if someone came and proposed Uber or Airbnb to you uh, back when they first came. And now we all accept that as a given, but you can imagine the objections that were raised then and seemed very plausible about the inability of those things to succeed. And what would have perhaps pushed you over the line and indeed did push VCs over the line to invest were the team and their vision. And they managed to adapt to circumstances, right? Airbnb was originally literally air bed 
and breakfast, as in their model was inflate an airbed and provide breakfast. It was not renting whole homes or doing vacation rentals. It was very prosaic and evolved over time. So uh, into what it is today. Uh, and uh, so I hate to say that we don't have any tools because for sure we do, but I wanted to emphasize what we're really looking for at the end of the day. At the end of the day is a qualitative assessment based on judgment of people that have spent their lives building companies or running them about the adaptability and market knowledge of the entrepreneurs that we back. Those are very, very good points, Ian, because uh, we like that stuff as well. Um, so you're really trying to get into the headset of the founders about how well they really understand the market compared to opinions or conjecture. And uh, so we have tried to really understand where they're coming from because, as you said, the thing with agility and flexibility is really important. Uh, and one thing we've noticed is these young ventures do at some point need to go through a pivot or two. And for that to happen, uh, the better look ahead you have, the better. Whether it's data-driven or you just learn faster or you get better insights, a greater pool of knowledge to draw from or whatever. And you start you know, making calculated adjustments the market strategy or the business model or what the technology is or what the product is called or who you go after. So a lot of these things go into uh, figuring out how to create wealth, how to manage risk. And key to that is this look ahead capability and this brain trust with your different complementing uh, uh, skills and talent and experiences to help figure this stuff out. Because by nature, you know, venture investing is about the new. And in many ways, that's a crapshoot. So you need to be smarter about how to reduce the uh, uh, risks and better manage the odds so that uh, you can win. And that's all about the people uh, and about this brain trust uh, and about just how to monetize value creation. And time is of the essence. Because you're writing about the five and eight year time frame like some of ours are 10 to 20 years. And boy, a lot of things can happen and go wrong in that time frame. So the more you're on the same page going in, the more fun it is, more rewarding it is, and it's faster to get results. All right, well, related to, uh... oh, go ahead, John. I, I was just gonna add, you know, it's been said, right? The world's never moved this fast and it'll never move this slow again, right? Which is just in terms of the pace that we're all talking about, the flexibility, the agility, the risk management that comes into place. And this world is not slowing down. So to continue to, to, to go back to the basics, right? The relationship depth that's there when you, when you talk about it from due diligence, the risk management, the understanding the people that you're working with, and also sticking to the spaces that you know. So, you know, FinTech families, and I was working this morning with, a couple partners going through, right, going through an event right now, but participating in the roll-up that is taking place and what that looks like, uh, because the scale and the speed that's out there with the cheap cash that's chasing it, th this is just going to continue to accelerate. So the nimbleness and the, the risk management being job number one 
is also sticking towards what we know versus trying to get do, uh, too diluted or too early stage, right? I'll be the first one to admit the, the angels on this panel are going to be better at sorting out some of those early things. As they sort through that, we come in then and say we can deploy more capital into it. Right. Makes sense. We have a um, certified blockchain nerd in the family office club who's one of our members. And he says that uh, if he meets with somebody and he knows more than they do, about blockchain, then he doesn't invest. And that's related to Ian's point about, you know, just seeing what type of knowledge they have, what type of insight they have, what type of expertise. And like Ron was talking about, that's how you de-risk the investment to some point is just to dig into the intellect of the person and the quality of the team. Everybody says team is most important, but having tangible, clear, consistent ways to actually vet a team besides this person seems nice and you know, has things in common with me as a human being is, um, I think, a challenge for people early on investing or at investment firms, especially in the angel investments uh, space where the risk can be so high. Um, I wanted to also comment on uh, structures. So with the investments that you're doing, are you guys using convertible notes more, most often, safe notes some of the time? Are there new structures that you're using or... Is it really the same for every deal? And can you share, you know, an insight or two on, on what structures you like best and why? And I'm happy just to have a, a couple of you comment or, or we can all comment, comment, whatever you'd like. We're seeing a lot of um, transition to many more opportunities or deals are doing debt, doing convertible notes as opposed to equity rounds. Uh, not sure why, other than I think the pandemic caused a lot of entrepreneurs to say, wait a minute, maybe I can't raise that A round, that 5 million bucks that I need. And instead, let me just do a bridge uh, to get through this process and raise, you know, what I need for, to get 12 to 18 months of runway. I'll do it as a convertible debt for now because I also don't trust the valuation that I'm likely or not likely to get. So we're seeing many more of the deals that are coming across our um, desk are convertible debt. And so we're passing on, that's causing us to pass on a lot of deals uh, for that reason. But we, um, but, but that's the trend that we're noticing. Okay, great. Thank you. Anyone else want to comment? Richard, I uh, have been railing against convertible note. Safe is even worse. Uh, obviously, most investors prefer a price run because they know what they're getting. Uh, and nowadays, for uh, with the uh, uh, with the uh, qualified small business uh, uh, tax, uh, uh, no or rather no tax uh, provisions, the earlier we can get into a price round, the better we all are. Uh, and so, in that way, uh, for most investors, our strong preference uh, is and should be uh, price rounds. A lot of, however. Price rounds are ex very, very expensive, especially for very early stage companies, uh, somewhere between thirty to 50000 in Silicon Valley to get one done, uh, just in uh, attorney fees, right? Uh, and so it's not the most efficient use of capital for a lot of these companies. This is why convertible notes have become very popular. Uh, there is a, a thing that a lot of people are not aware of, uh, but we have seen it in Silicon Valley many, many times. Uh, it's called seriesseed.com. Uh, it's a set of uh, documents that are ready-made, available 
for uh, uh, early stage companies and investors to go to. So it, it, it looks to actually provide a uh, way to get a price run done uh, at much more reasonable prices. Of course, now there are also lots of different versions going around uh, with uh, edits and so on to make sure that it still fits the, the, the you know, the, the wrong, the wrong peg and all that stuff. But that's a really good, uh, short, easy way to get a price round done that's less expensive. Sure, okay. Anyone else wanna comment on structures you're using or that you like or don't like? Um, one thing that I'm curious about is um, we've gone into a couple of early stage companies that have revenue. Um, they're not seed or, or you know, pre-seed, but uh, they're revenue positive already. And we negotiated a gross revenue royalty to get our money back off the table quickly. And typically in three to five years, we have 100% of our money off the table. And what I've done now with three of them is had a, um, or with the last two actually, is had a equity warrant instead of equity. And we basically, once we get 1.2 times our money back, from their gross revenue, then our equity goes down, say from 5% to 3%. It's almost like they bought back some of that equity. And so us as the investor can recycle our cash into the next deal. The warrant allows us not to get diluted if they'll agree to it, but the warrant's a little bit of a distraction from the topic of just the gross revenue royalty approach in general. A lot of you have seen hundreds of deals get done over time. How many of you have found that approach to be helpful or have seen you know, anyone using that type of an approach just to get the capital raised faster by getting people their money back. Oh, Richard, I love that structure. Please send me, uh, next time you do one of those, send it to me. I might want to invest myself. Sure. Uh, truly, it's great to get your money back early, but that I'm imagining, and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, because I don't know the particulars of that deal, that that's just a fundamentally different kind of business proposition than, than, than many of us are talking about, at least here in the Silicon Valley. Um, Catherine and Gary and, and Ron, um, uh, because the, uh, you know, the thought is that we're trying to shoot the moon on a lot of these companies um, and money given back to investors is money not invested into, into the business and in a steeplechase of trying to get across the finish line first, as is often the case, um, that's, uh, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. So maybe you'll get your right. money back, but your equity won't be worth anything, you know? So uh, we, we are always on the lookout for things like that, but but it's it would be hard to imagine the deal where that's possible. Uh, well, in, in terms of the high tech deals, we do. We, uh, right. Like Gary mentioned, once we've we've been looking at some ag tech deals. For example, one of our companies is doing a vertical farm. For and before COVID, it was going great because they had a contract to do all of uh, Emirates Airlines uh, food production in the world's largest vertical farm. Uh, that's a high tech deal that was going to throw off a lot of cash and, and a structure like you just described could have been possible, but what wouldn't have been possible is for that structure to have survived the next round of financing whoever the next guys were, who were coming in to finance this hmm. ag tech company, right. I'm sure would not have accepted us having a premier uh, uh, priority dividend over their investment. So sure. I'd love to know more about those companies you just described. It's a clever strategy if you can get away with it, but not typical for high growth, high tech and very high return you know, 101 kind of uh, ambitions for an investment. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, some people react and say, oh, well, why would a CEO ever agree to that? They'd have to be a dumb, a dumb CEO to agree to it. But uh, what I found is that it can be used to make it smart or dumb for either side, right? So like one family, 
I just met with, uh, just sold their portfolio for $100 million. They're growing their next chain of retail locations. And, you know, one thing I told them is like with a royalty, you could give back the money to the investors. So they get two times their money back and they go away. And then they retain all the equity and the equity goes from 5% to zero. Because now you've doubled your money in three years. Like a certain type of investor will want that. I know you don't, Ian. You're looking for the 20 times, 100 times return. So uh, I think that you're right. For the very early stage when there's no revenue yet, there's no royalty possible. And for other reasons, it may not make sense. But yeah, happy to keep in touch on that. Um, Richard, I... I would I would uh, be very interested in seeing a rough cut term sheet on that something like that. Interestingly, I just had this conversation with a couple of angels last week. Uh, yeah. People have been talking about how do we construct a revenue based return deal uh, for a while, um, okay. and I think we really tap into a different part of somebody's portfolio, especially since this is a family office uh, uh, group of audience. Uh, different people have different kinds of return expectations and, and risk comfort and all of that stuff. And I would say that when you have a um, more cash flow uh, focused uh, deal versus a growth model deal, uh, the returns are very different and the risk profile is very different. And of course, the investment methodology and structure should be different. So, you know, it's just another tool in the, in the, in the bag. Right, right. We're uh, structuring a deal right now with a $10 million a year dental clinic chain um, using the royalty stuff. I'm happy to send over a term sheet and example to both of you. you. And um, there's a company on Amazon, Amazon called Better Bath, Better Body. And we've done a couple of royalty deals, you know, with them as mm-hmm. well. Uh, if anyone has questions that are watching here live, feel free to submit your questions. Um, otherwise, I'd like to go around and get uh, one last insight or a comment from each uh, person here on the panel. I feel like maybe Skip, maybe I didn't ask you enough questions during the panel. If you want to start first with any last comments or insights and something you wanted to really get across uh, during the session here today. Um, I don't have anything super uh, exciting or um, out of the box. It's just that I keep reminding people, though, that deals are getting done. Commerce is still happening. You know, 80%, 85% of the uh, people that want to be employed are in fact still employed today and they are spending. Um, tech companies in particular, a lot of them are actually growing through this pandemic because of opportunities now that exist that may not have existed, uh, you know, a year ago. Uh, investors are willing to invest. So, um, you know, we're not sitting on our hands and uh, we're not just waiting for things to happen. We're making things happen both as investors as well as the entrepreneurs. And so uh, I find that very positive. That's what I love about our free enterprise system. Things happen. And uh, we're all working through this. And it, it's, it's different. It's an exciting time, uh, but, but it's still going forward. Right, right, great. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think you get rewarded for more high action right now rather than less. Uh, Gary, any last comments from yourself? Uh, well, going with what Ross saying, you know, absolutely chaos, you know, breeds opportunity if you know how to see through the fog of the chaos and find it. Uh, but from an investor side, one of the things that I, I, I look at a lot of times with it, especially early investors that are coming in is don't fall in love with the technology. Um, we're going into some technology areas now with AI and stuff, and the technology is going to be really cool again. And it's so easy to fall in love with the technology and lose sight of all other flags that are going on around you because you've fallen in love with the technology. That was, that's kind of a simple one right there that I see often. 
Right, right. For sure. Great. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Catherine? Um, I actually want to advertise a few deals that I'm seeing that are of interest. Uh, one is a B2B2C uh, uh, guiding consumers to a healthy, healthier way of eating. But it's a B2B2C and they have, I believe, a platform and a business model that can potentially consolidate what is right now a highly fragmented uh, business. Uh, repeat entrepreneur uh, seeing, I don't know, they're signing, they have signed over $5 million in contract, total contract value. Uh, and uh, the deal is priced at $10 million or so, price deal. Uh, there's another company, it's a portfolio company in, in medical devices, uh, adapting quickly to try to become a um, COVID relevant uh, testing platform uh, for at-home testing. Uh, and uh, uh, they're actually deferring their FDA pr uh, uh, process uh, to be ready for the market for, uh, uh, what do you call it, blood testing uh, with um, uh, trials. And so there are a couple of deals like this that are actually happening that I think have relevance to the market today. Uh, so I just want to say that, you know, if you're interested, let me know. Great. Thank you. Uh, John, any last comments? One of the other panelists mentioned uh, that there's other parts of the family office balance sheet. And we also have to think about tech, right? We've talked a lot about the, you know, the very early on, the angel side of things. You know, UBS just came out with their 2020 global family office report. And there still is 59% you know, uh, allocated typically towards uh, traditional assets. So when you think about the tech opportunities that are out there, there absolutely are that these individuals uh, have mentioned and are, and are talking through and are looking at, but the, the opportunity given this acceleration of adoption rates, whether it be genomics or FinTech, or we've talked about artificial intelligence or cyber or autonomous or energy storage, you go down the list, there's all kinds of tech opportunities that are continuing to accelerate in that curve, both in the very early stage that the individuals are speaking about, but also in the public markets. So, uh, so having that balance across the family is, is important. And there's all kinds of opportunities that are out there that have great potential uh, because this is gonna continue to speed up for all of us. Right, right, for sure. Uh, Ron, any last comments? Uh, sure. Uh, so we really uh, recognize the need to support entrepreneurship and also for the need for uh, early stage investors to uh, collaborate. So this is really important to be successful and make it a sustainable business. So if any of you uh, on the panel or others uh, listening have uh, ventures with technology of interest to enterprises, either as uh, customers for them or as partners in the go-to-market strategy, feel free to contact Kale. Okay. Uh, Ian, any last comments? Uh, sure. Since um, I'm presuming what your audience might be interested in, I'll put in a plug for angel investing and, and a caution. I think uh, angel investing can be frustrating. It's easy to lose uh, all your money or a large portion of it. It's also an allocation, asset allocation segment that can be wildly re rewarding. And that very high variation um, makes it hard to say anything generalized about the segment. Uh, whenever I'm speaking to investors who are thinking of an asset allocation, I always say that angel investing is really worth investing in as a category, 
but as a very small part of a large allocation. Uh, its returns, uh, especially if you do it in just a couple of companies, are very volatile and can often be zero. I know angels that have done five or six investments and all of them have gone to zero. Uh, people that have built larger portfolios, uh, depending on how they built them, can have an increasing chance to really get outsized uh, outsized returns based on the occasional outlier in that portfolio. So as I mentioned earlier, we, we didn't invest directly in Airbnb. Rather, we invested in a startup company that was quickly acquired by Airbnb early in its history. And it, it's going to turn out to be an extraordinarily lucrative investment for band members. Um, and it wasn't so much that we were smart as we were kind of lucky. We invested in a team that was adaptable, as Catherine said, and managed to adapt their way all the way into being acquired by a, by a, by a, by a unicorn. And so that outcome is only because we invest in a lot of companies. And so if you're thinking of investing in this category, you really ought to have a strategy uh, to invest in a bunch of companies and then the returns can be worth it. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess part of that message is um, the worst thing to do would be to see four to 10 deals a year that you have access to invest in a couple of them per year and do so haphazardly uh, because your chances of losing your money are excellent. And instead you should use your, your strengths, where you made your money, maybe look at that industry, access a couple of angel networks, learn what, you know, groups like John are doing on the family office, uh, VC angel investing side and combine all of that and make sure you don't go at it like the golf club, yacht club investor who they see four deals a year. So one of them looks great and they, they allocate, right? I mean, that's the literally one of the dumbest things you can do as a private investor is you, you don't even know how bad your deal flow is. Uh, so your, your number one deal is one out of four. You know, I think that for any investor who just had a liquidity event, you know, I would just make sure and heed that advice because there's so much to learn and such a, such a steep learning curve to go through to, to manage all the risks. We had, a, we had a question from Eric here. I don't know if one of you would like to comment on this real quick and then we'll sign off. Uh, his question, because I know he runs a high-tech company here in the club, is um, would you prefer to invest in a company that's asking for $18 million their first year or a company that raises $6 million a year over three years and then not have a profit until year four? Uh, he's basically saying if they raised $18 million up front, maybe they could have a profit in year two versus do $6 million per year. Um, it's hard without any other context to probably make any comment on that. I realize, but any comments on it, I guess, just to be helpful to. It's impossible to answer without knowing the context, as you say, uh, right. uh somebody just now said, you know, it, 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 it all depends on, uh, it all depends on, uh, uh, what happens and, uh, a company and a, uh, entrepreneur has to be able to adapt, be adaptable and be agile. So, right. Without knowing anything, I would say that dumping 18 million into a first uh, business model and first attempt is probably foolhardy unless it's absolutely buttoned down, safe. Um, and uh, so absent any other information, I would say, hey, you know, bet small so that you can pivot as you go. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I think so many times we get questions, not just on discussion panels, just over email, and it'll be, you know, I really like concise emails, uh, but sometimes they'll just ask you something without the context. No one on planet Earth can answer that question, really. 
And, um, you know, I don't know if anyone else has a comment on that or anything well, else. I, well, I would say, if you were to say fundamentally with nothing, like I said, with nothing else to consider, the, one of the primary things of, 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 the, of the startup model is speed to market. So if it achieves speed to market, it reduces risk, yes. If it achieves speed to market into a brick wall, possibly not. Right, right, right. Gary's, very, to back up yeah. Gary's point with, like, you know, Uber was out trying to raise, I don't know the number, I'm going to make it up, $10 million in their first round. When they got their round done from Benchmark, it was for $40 million because the thought was, if we're going to do this, let's do this. Let's buy it. Let's make it happen. So raising more money can make sense, uh, but you're not going to get that from Angel. So to your gentleman's point, uh, for this panel at least, that is mostly made up of representatives of relatively uh, smaller check sizes, you, you know, you, we just wouldn't look at a deal that's raising $18 million. That's something for our, for NEA or Excel, not for, not for smaller investors. Right. Right. Okay, great. And um, one last comment is Catherine and Gary both made comments earlier that reminded me of something I'm seeing more often. It's just um, not that everyone has this attribute, but there seems to be a slightly outsized success ratio for those who are, ex-military veteran, uh, quasi-college level or professional athletes or black belt, uh, martial artist type people that just have high discipline, high work ethic. And when you combine that with being agile, it just seems like in the investment space, I see an outsized percentage of those people operating in an excellent way and having SOPs and KPIs and really executing. And it's just something I've been, been seeing recently in the space. So. Appreciate everyone um, joining us here today for the panel. Um, we'll have this in the member portal in just a couple of days in case you want to share it with someone on your team. If you'd like to connect with any of the panelists that you saw here, just let Jennifer know on our team. You should be connected to her already via email and she can help get you connected uh, to a couple of the panelists here. We're going to have a virtual influence workshop uh, coming up in September. I believe it's September 19th, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a four and a half hour workshop on influence and persuasion related to the investment industry and how to make more progress and you know, getting people's attention and getting them to work with you or take meetings with you, et cetera. We also have uh, our first commercial real estate.com power player summit coming up uh, later in September, September 24th. And then uh, every week, typically between now and then we're releasing investor interviews, discussion panels, or doing a live webinar, et cetera. So, Make sure and coordinate with Jennifer to do your membership walkthrough if you haven't done that yet. And I appreciate everyone's time here today joining us here for the panel. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate your time.